This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. Today we'll look at the role of royalty and monarchy down through the centuries in the lives of various cultures. We'll also examine slavery in its aftermath and the impact on Australia. And we'll hear from former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd paying tribute to Alan Gingell, who died last week. But first this hour, the ethics of providing advice to government when you're not government. The first public hearings for the Senate Committee Inquiry into Consulting Services were held this week, and we can start to see how the government sees this problem and what the possible fixes are. Now, just to remind you, if you haven't been following it, this inquiry was called after revelations that a former partner at PwC, that's the consultancy firm PricewaterhouseCoopers, shared secret government policy material with partners and other clients relating to a proposed crackdown on tax avoidance by multinationals operating here. It was all part, dating back to 2014 and the Abbott government's plans. Now, the breach was discovered during an audit by the Tax Practitioners Board in 2018, and it came to light earlier this year, prompting this inquiry. The Financial Review says the Treasury sought legal advice, but decided not to refer to the, the matter to the Federal Police. But I noticed they're reporting today in a very strong piece by Neil Chenoweth, the veteran reporter, um, distilling it, using outsiders can be val- invaluable for government, but how do you run a system when you have lost trust. So there's a great deal at stake and a former senior public servant, Andrew Podger, gave evidence to the inquiry and I welcome him now. Good morning, Andrew. Hi, Geraldine. You told the inquiry on Tuesday that consultants, quote, tailor their work in order to ensure they get future business. Seemed fairly precise language to me from you. Um, What were you getting at? What's the evidence? How do we know this happens? Well, I think... It's a it's it's a, a an obvious uh, point for of commercial reality. If you're providing um, policy advice in a consultancy report, you want to make sure that you're going to get future future business. So you're likely to uh, tailor it in some way towards uh, what the client is looking for. Now, I, I don't suggest that. Uh, advice is not provided that's very good advice and most of it, most of it will be. Mm. But there will be a, a an incentive to tailor it towards what you think your client wants to hear in order to get future business. And this, so this is, has this been recognised? I suppose that's the next question because it is obvious when you put it like that, but is this been something that is sort of generally taken for granted within um, the government commissioners' circles or not? Uh, I think it varies. I mean, there, is, there are two areas where uh, it's a good idea to, to get external advice and consultancies. Uh, one is where you need some expertise that it is not value for money to have inside, uh, that... that uh, the, the demand for that expertise isn't sufficient to require you to invest in it inside your organisation, so you buy it from outside. And the other area is where you want to have an external perspective from time to time on something that you feel that the internal expe- perspective may be too narrow, may be too uh, locked in, uh, and you want to have a, a fresh look at it, and so you, you get somebody outside to do it. Um, so those are 
there are legitimate reasons for using consultancies, um, but you, be, you then bear in mind that the consultant will wish to um, make sure that they get future future business. Now, on the second uh, side of it, on the external uh, perspective, uh, they will provide that fresh look, but take into account what they think the government or the department that might be employing them uh, is looking for uh, and get something that's that's useful for them so you do take that into account when you when you're mm. when you're uh, engaging with a consultant you're, you're aware of uh, that particular incentive and for the most part uh, that incentive doesn't cause major problems yes well as, as again this piece in the financial review quoted John Roscombe uh, the head of the conservative think tank the Institute of Public Affairs wrote late last week what PwC did wrecked this process that you've really just described Andrew and will have repercussions for years I wonder if that is your assessment too well I don't this this case I don't know uh, that it's a common case at all. I mean, this is an is an extraordinary case, uh, and clearly the nature of it has broken trust between Treasury and the Treasurer and PwC. Uh, now, the consideration is: is it just a rogue person, or is it a broader issue within P- PwC? Five hundred and thirty-seven million dollars worth of government contracts, by the way, they That's- had with this. <laughs> Yeah, yes, uh, but, uh, but the issue is is if it's just a rogue person and it's not an issue then of overall trust and you can you can expect the organisation to sort it out. But if, in fact, there's some of the material coming out over the last week or two suggests that there are, um, there are others who were aware of this, well, then you do have a breakdown in trust, in which case, you know, Treasury has to think very carefully about its use of PwC for some time. Mm. I mean, the government has already announced a $10 million evaluation unit to sit inside Treasury to, quotes, evaluate key programs, rebuild lost internal evaluation capability and support high-quality evaluation, such as better data practices. Now, this was an election pledge um, and, and the funding, we understand, will be formally announced in the budget next week. It's an intriguing sort of sidebar to all this. Why has there historically been resistance to evaluation of federally funded programs? Well, if I go back to uh, early 1990s, uh, the then uh, Hawke-Keating government um, introduced what I thought was best practices in the area, and that required any minister bringing forward a policy proposal to have within that policy proposal, first of all, what is the evaluation evidence uh, that supports this proposal? And secondly, if the proposal is agreed, how is it going to be evaluated to see that it actually achieves what we want it to achieve? In addition, the government at that time, uh, through the finance department, required every department to have an evaluation plan which clarified when they were going to evaluate all their programs. And that was a systematic way of having evaluation. That process was watered down over the over the subsequent years and hasn't been re- reintroduced. It's been recommended by Sodi report on the public service that it ought to be reintroduced as have others. And I'm pleased to see a first step towards that with the establishment of this evaluation unit. So it's a, it's a step to reintroduce. The reason why it, it it's deteriorated, is that there is a political concern that evaluations might reveal things that went wrong and there will be a media beat up about it mm. and, and the politics of that is not particularly um, positive for the government of the day. 
Is $10 million enough to do that sort of work? Well, I don't think that $10 million is, is, is meant to do all the evaluations of everything. It's meant to be a centre of excellence and to promote evaluation. It'll do some evaluations itself, but I'm sure the next step is for that to be supporting a more systematic uh, process of evaluation across the public service. It's something I would very much welcome because it's not only good for getting better data about what our programs are doing, but it's also a way of re-establishing capability within the public service because public servants doing that evaluation will build up their technical skills and their knowledge and be able to give better advice. So this will be for uh, work done by the public service and work done by external agencies? or I think it will be primarily done by the public service, but I think there will be some external. I think uh, we're sensibly they will use some academics as well as some private companies, but I think for the majority it's likely to be done within the public service. But that's not been made clear yet, but the government has separately said that they're going to reduce uh, money spent on consultants and make more use of the public service expertise. I mean, the, the Green Senator, Barbara Pocock, who sponsored the inquiry, she's actually called for PwC Australia to be banned from doing consultancy work for the government. And I, I know you don't want to get drawn too much in, into the details of this, but I wonder if that sort of thing is likely to happen. I mean, $2 billion were handed out to consultancy firms. We've reported on this quite a bit on Saturday Extra. I wonder if you think we are, th- this is a bit of a tipping point or not. Well, I think this is a, a particular case of abuse by the consultant of the trust that they, they were expected to have. Uh, I don't think myself, from my knowledge, that that's common. Uh, but when it does occur, there needs to be a penalty. And a, a, an obvious penalty is to cease work with that company for some period of time, unless... They, the company's able to show it was absolutely a rogue person and their their procedures are right. But uh, at this point, the suspicion is that that's not so, in which case some period, I don't know how long, uh, the PwC should be told they will not get contracts, at least with Treasury and probably not elsewhere. All right, Andrew, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Okay, thank you very much. Andrew Podger, former head of the Australian Public Service, uh, uh, and uh, actually I don't think that's completely accurate, and now Professor of Public Policy at ANU, but very senior and still contributing greatly. Up next, uh, Kevin Rudd remembers Alan Gingell. Alan Gingell's death this week came as a big shock to many of us. We knew he was ill, but we certainly didn't anticipate the speed of the cancer that claimed him so fast. He'd been such a reliable fixture in his many different roles around Australia's diplomacy and national security, so ready to do whatever it took to engage people in looking outward to consider uh, Australia's place in the world, that it It was hard to imagine him simply not here. Dare I say, he was someone who constantly thought bigger, much of it behind the scenes. And I'm just one of so many who personally benefited from his encouragement, from his time setting up the Lowy Institute to leading the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Here he is in his last Australia and the World podcast with Darren Lim, where, by quoting Yale historian Arnie Westard, Alan really distilled, I think, his own key message about preventing violent wars. If there's one big lesson of the Cold War, it is that unilateral military intervention does not work to anyone's advantage, while open borders 
cultural interaction and fair economic exchange benefit all. This is not a pacifist argument. I believe firmly in the right of self-defence when attacked, but it is an argument that recognises that in a world that is becoming increasingly diverse ideologically, just as communications tie us closer together, the only way of working against increased conflict is by stimulating interaction while recognising diversity and, when needed, acting multilaterally to forestall disastrous events. So, look, we would be wise, I think, to listen to and learn the lessons of the last Cold War and containment policies before we embark on the new one. Well, that was uh, Kevin Rudd. Uh, wasn't Kevin Rudd, sorry. That was Alan Gingell in really a sort of almost a final statement from him on his Australia and the World podcast. Um, and, of course, he was a very frequent um, uh, guest on uh, Saturday Extra as well. Well, one man who experienced firsthand Alan's talents and sought them out was former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, now our ambassador to Washington. He and his wife, Therese, released a statement yesterday honouring Alan, agreeing with Senator Penny Wong that he was our greatest mind on foreign policy. And I am delighted he can join us now live from Washington. Good morning, Kevin Rudd. Good afternoon from Washington. Good to talk to you about Alan. What was your exposure to his talents? Over many years, like Alan, I was a um, junior officer in the Department of Foreign Affairs. I joined probably a decade or a decade and a half after Alan. Um, But he, by that stage, was already something of a legend in the Australian Foreign Service. But after that, I got to know him when he was working for for Paul Keating, uh, when he was Paul Keating's uh, international affairs advisor. That's when he worked with Paul, for example, on the Australia-Indonesia Security Agreement uh, in the mid-90s and then in the elevation of APEC from a economic minister's meeting to a heads of government forum. So through that, I just came to understand what a fine mind he was. And certainly when I became prime minister myself, decided that uh, we needed his brains back in government. So I asked him, rang him up and said, mate, come back and... uh, head of the Office of National Assessments. He graciously did so. He, t- he told me about that, that he was on holiday, I think, and re- re- relishing his free time. And as he said, when the Prime Minister rings you up and asks you to take this on, you sort of have to say yes. Well, the poor bugger was on the Amalfi Coast. So, um, <laughs> so for, for me to call him at some ungodly hour, because I didn't know he was abroad, and say, um, we'd really like you. Uh, could you um, could you come and join us? Uh, and this is a really important piece of work because things were changing strategically in our region. We were seeing at the time the first evidences of uh, the military rise of China, and I needed a clear analytical lens on what was unfolding. And Alan was the man at the time. I was so glad he said yes. You say that he was a statesman in the true sense of the word in your statement. Why do you say that? Because with Alan, and I think Paul Keating has said something similar, he was able to look at the vast spread of history, the vast spread of complexity in the current international environment, look at nuance, look at detail, and then distill it in a manner which made sense to political and policy practitioners. 
there's a whole bunch of people in the world who are capable of infinite analysis of this, that and the other. There are very few people in the world who can produce elegant, intelligible and reasoned synthesis capable of being used, you know, for those who have to make policy decisions. But he wasn't just an analyst. He would also say, this is the lie of the land in its essence, and this therefore represents a pathway forward. And uh, that's why I used the language that I did. Mm. What has struck me, Kevin, along with the acknowledgements about his official roles in government and the think tank world and national intelligence community were his personal traits. John Blacksland wrote that he was kind, humble, unassuming, approachable, respectful and always gracious. And I would add, you know, tremendously encouraging of younger people too, who've also spoken out. Several obituaries, I might add, have mentioned quietly that he had a wicked sense of humour hidden beneath that very even exterior. His brother is Kim Gingell, Colin of Kath and Kim fame. I wonder if you recall seeing that humour much. Did he keep it under wraps? Well, in the Prime Minister's office, because he and I would have regular briefings, the head of ONA, as it then was, ONI, as it is today, the Office of National uh, Intelligence now, the Office of National assessments then, would usually have a weekly or semi-weekly appointment with the PM to uh, run through the intelligence assessments of the week, usually about half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. He was very good at it. So what I found with uh, all those exchanges was uh, a guy who had all the intellectual qualities I just described before, but as some of the other uh, eulogists have just described, there was this towering intellect, but with remarkably, with a very, very small ego. In other words, he saw the analysis as most important, not he, the personality presenting the analysis. So that's what always stood out. But you're right, there was always a wicked twinkle in the eye as he would uh, provide passing reflections on individual p- political personalities, dare I say it, both at home and abroad, <laughs> and not just abroad. <laughs> He was good. He was good. And and look, that book of his just refreshed and reprinted it, which he said he sort of, you know, unashamedly promoted, self-promoted. He was very funny about it on the the podcast. Fear of Abandonment, Australia and the World Since 1942. I think that's widely regarded as a bit of a classic. I mean, do you think he judged Australia's dilemmas right in that work? Did it influence your own thoughts, I wonder? By and large, although by 2017, when Fear of Abandonment came out, um, I had uh, left the scene. I left political office at the end of 2013. But the ideas contained within it were certainly those he reflected in his earlier analysis within government as well. Um, And his selection of the title, Fear of Abandonment, is always opposite. You see, there's always been something of a view in Australian foreign policy going back hundreds of years, that here we are, this um, precarious uh, European enclave who had uh, occupied a continent previously occupied by Indigenous peoples, but found ourselves on the farthest reaches of the world, adjacent to a continent called Asia, where we eventually, 25 million plus, were part of a region of three to four billion, and therefore felt abandoned. That is... uh, in search of protection first from Britain, well, understandable, protection laterally from the United States, understandable, 
but dealing also with a fundamental sense of national insecurity. Of course, in part, that sense of insecurity was right as the extraordinary events of 1941-42 demonstrated to us all when Japan entered the Pacific War. And as a result of that, um, Australia turned to America. But I think Allen's continued thesis was um, reliance and alliance with our great and powerful friends is important. It's central, but it is not the exclusive equation when it comes to the future of Australia's foreign policy and security policy. We must also row our own race, albeit based on our alliance with the United States. Mm. Yes, and, and I mean, in a way, he's a good example, isn't he, of the of the talent, the extraordinary talent that lies behind the scenes in Australian life that certainly doesn't get the headlines. Uh, and he's a bureaucrat, you know, the famed sort of, you know, faceless bureaucrats who, um, who don't exactly get a good press. But they play very vital but low-key roles in Australia's fortunes. I mean, am I over-egging the pie? But that's how I certainly saw him. Well, in the, dare I say it, for, for wishing not to sound like Grandpa Moses myself, but as someone who was originally trained as, a, as a, an Australian public servant, uh, albeit in the diplomatic service, the truth is, back in those days, um, we weren't awash with such people, but there was a bunch of them um, who were great thinkers and were robust enough in their character and their personality to reflect an argument to the government or the Prime Minister or the Foreign Minister of the day, whether that happened to mesh with the predilections or known predilections of um, those senior ministers. Now, he was such a person. And in the history of the Australian Commonwealth has relied so much on the skill set and the wisdom and talent and institutional knowledge and memory of an independent Australian public service. I think one of the great tragedies of more recent times has been that cadre, that culture uh, of um, Westminster entrenched independence, capable of nurturing that sort of talent, providing frank and fearless advice, has been put under threat um, at various times more recently. And that's what we need to get back to so that we have more Alan Gingels serving the Commonwealth in the future. Look, thank you very much indeed for breaking into your uh, into your uh, schedule today to speak to us. I do appreciate it. It's important we do so for Alan, great man, great Australian, and we're poor for his passing. Indeed. Uh, Kevin Rudd speaking to us from Washington, and I think we all send our thoughts to Catherine and uh, his entire family who will no doubt be missing him greatly. Well, uh, up next, uh, another... Perspective on Australia, the legacy of slavery. Last week, we featured an interview with Laura Trevelyan. She's the co-founder of a new group called Heirs of Slavery, and it generated a big response from so many wonderful Saturday Extra listeners. Laura described how a few years ago, one of her relatives typed the Trevelyan name into an academic database on British slavery, only to discover that her family owned enslaved Africans on sugarcane plantations in Grenada in the Caribbean. Since then, Trevelyan and her extended family have been wrestling with the links between the past and the present, 
uh, I might add, they've extended to Ireland uh, in the last week too, but recently apologising and paying reparations to the people of Grenada. We'd gone around the island and we'd seen the estates that my ancestors had part owned and Nicole had showed me the instruments of torture, the neck braces, the whips and the manacles that were used on the enslaved. And we'd looked at the slave registers and we'd seen that more people died than were born on the estates that the Trevelyans had owned. And it was really sobering and appalling. Now, when the British Parliament voted to end slavery in 1833, huge compensation was paid by the British government to slave-owning families like the Trevelyans, money which also trickled down to Australia. And this is a growing area of research that you told us you wanted to hear more about. One of the leading researchers in this area is Professor Zoe Laidlaw from the University of Melbourne, and I welcome her now. Hello there. Hello, Geraldine. Thanks for inviting us on. Look, this is all really quite revealing. It would seem that this Legacies of British Slavery database that lists who was compensated has opened up a whole new area of investigation and thinking. How important has this been in terms of making connections between the colonies and Britain? It's it's really... Um opened up an an entire new area, I think. Of course, Australian historians have been very conscious of um, our connection to Britain, Um, but with the opening up of this database, you were suddenly able to put in names and find connections. And, of course, at the time that people made their claims for compensation back in the 1830s, uh, they applied as individuals and their compensation claims were... Uh, honoured or they were rejected. And there wasn't much more detail about them and address for, you know, where they'd made their claim from. But what that team in Britain did was add just enormous quantities of biographical data where they could find it uh, so that they would record if it was known that someone then went to Australia or had descendants who uh, went to Sydney or something like that. And so we've been able to use that database to open up Um, some of these stories about people who were connected to slavery in the Caribbean and then came to Australia. How does it actually work, this database? Um, Well, it's available to the public um, and you can go onto the University College London's, uh, it's called LBS database for legacies of British slavery and you can put in a surname um, or more details of a person if you know them um, and just see what comes up and you might get someone who um, actually made a claim but they've added lots of other people over time as well so people who um, could have been connected with slavery in the Caribbean in other ways. It, of course, it doesn't tell you every biographical detail or all the details of people's descendants. So, um, you know, you can't, there's a lot of uh, further research that's required to kind of um, understand what's going on and to make some of those connections. And that's what um, our team um, at right. the University of Melbourne and Western Australia have been doing. Are piecing together. Um, you know, a bit like Hercule Poirot, by the sound of it. Um, so did Britons with experience in the Caribbean or people who received compensation, this vital thing about compensation that we learn about, did they come here? I mean, it sounds reasonable. Uh, yes, they did, both. So some people came from the Caribbean to Australia, so they perhaps worked, well, some of those people had been enslaved um, or their parents had been enslaved. Others had worked on plantations as managers and overseers. That's, um, others had been plantation owners and 
they divested from the Caribbean um, either before emancipation because they could see it was coming or at the time of emancipation or afterwards and came to Australia. But um, as Laura Trevelyan was explaining last week, there was also a lot of people in Britain who had investments in the Caribbean but weren't based there. Mm. And they also got compensation. Their investments, of course, are sometimes humans, which is, you know, um, rather chilling to think about. They received the compensation and they then either came to Australia themselves or they reinvested that money but in the Australian colonies. Yes, that was these suggestive patterns, I think you say, is what is very interesting. Um, and look, we're not going to do a sort of surprise ancestry show right now, but maybe you could tell us about some of the families or the people who did come here or who invested their money here, which is another very interesting sidebar, without emigrating. Yeah, of course. Um, and there's, there's hundreds um, that we've discovered and we're discovering more all the time. Uh, we've been focusing on some of the colonies uh, that were begun in the 1820s and 30s because it's a really good moment where people are exiting the Caribbean and then reinvesting uh, in Australia. Um, one high-profile family um, is the Burt family in Western Australia. There's actually a federal electorate of Burt. Mm. And Archibald Burt um, came, his father had been uh, in the Caribbean um, and there'd been a long history of Burt's there owning plantations and things. Uh, and he was trained as a lawyer and a judge and he came to Western Australia in the uh, early 1860s and he did things like he started trying to grow sugarcane, for example, uh, near Perth, um, and he became very prominent. He was the um, senior judge in the Supreme Court of Western Australia. His descendants have stayed in Western Australia. And become very uh, senior judges too. Very senior judges. One indeed was the um, uh, governor. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, he didn't bring very... Um, you know, that's just one story. We've got lots of people who leave the Caribbean or investments in the Caribbean and come to Australia and become pastoralists. Uh, what about James Sterling, who set up the colony of Western Australia? Well, absolutely. The first governor of Western Australia, James Sterling, when Western Australia starts as the Swan River colony in 1829, um, Sterling's family, Sterling had been in the Navy. His family had been connected to uh, the trade with the Atlantic for generations on both his mother's and his father's side. Um, and they were, but they were in quite dire financial straits. He came from a large family. Uh, and he came to Western Australia. Um, it was a sort of a private company that really set up Western Australia with the authorization of the British government. And they were hoping to make make their fortunes um, and some of the money they brought with them to do that. The capital came from the Caribbean. We have families that arrived in 1829 in Western Australia um, that had been in Demerara where they had uh, plantations and worked on plantations. They move into Perth's hinterland, into the Avon Valley. Um, and Avon, we say in WA. Avon. Oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> the Avon Valley. You can tell this is a national project. Yeah. I'm the, the Melbourne branch. Um, but they, with the capital they bring, they're given big land grants. And what's really interesting to us as historians is not only following um, those families and their fortunes and looking some of them still have descendants, but thinking about some of the ideas and the practices that they 
might have brought from the Caribbean and from their experiences of slavery. So we see those early families thinking about how are they going to have labourers to work their land um, and they are interested in all sorts of things, bringing indentured labourers from other parts of the British Empire. How are they going to try and compel their already taking uh, traditional owners' land, but might they be able to compel those traditional owners to work for them? Um, can they bring out orphans Is from that the actually UK? articulated? Uh, well, they don't say, because I've been in the Caribbean, I'm going to do this, but they these are leading figures behind a whole series of schemes for bringing in different types of labour forces that we would call unfree, not enslaved mm. necessarily, but not really free either. Um, and their prominence in those societies that are, and arrangements to bring in those labour forces are very strongly suggestive that um, at the least they'd got the idea or the expectation that you could make other people work for you in very poor conditions and for little or no money from their experience in the Caribbean. Has this been obvious in Australian history or just obscured or just not really tapped? How would you describe it? Uh, some of it has been hidden deliberately. Some has been there in plain sight, but we haven't thought about it. Um, some of it, of course, I have colleagues, uh, Emma Christopher, is one of the historians working on Queensland where there is a history of kind of more explicit um, practices bordering mm. on slavery in terms of the indentured South mm. Sea Islander labour trade and so on. So that stuff's been very well known. But, I mean, I live in Melbourne, as you can tell from my pronunciation <laughs> of Western Australian names. But here, um, just in the last couple of years, uh, one of the local government authorities, now Merribeck, changed its name from Moreland um, because it was realised or recognised or it became important that Moreland was named uh, by an early settler for his grandfather's estate, his sugar estate, which had enslaved workers in Jamaica. Now, even on the street signs of Moreland before um, this became controversial, it, it actually had a little potted history of that and it said Moreland is named for Far Farquhar McRae, the early settlers, grandfather's estate in Jamaica. But it wasn't something that had been really remarked upon or considered to be important until the last few years, I would say. So mm. sometimes those histories, are they're not hidden at all. We just don't see them. I mean, it's interesting um, what reading the material you provided us with, that that sense that quite a lot of people with the compensation uh, that they got, some of them had, as you say, lost their, well, small fortunes, sometimes very, very big fortunes, but they they suddenly saw an opportunity in the new colonies in Australia to re to reassert themselves. So they so they were quite enterprising people. It has to be said. It's just that they had they had some uh, rather awful things in in their past. And I was thinking of the particularly the Victorian goldfields. I bet that brought a lot of people out because. Uh, that's why I learned on a on a trek through in the summertime. Just that was I think we had a sevenfold rise in our population with the Victorian um, gold rushes. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, colonisation in Victoria starts in the mid eighteen thirties, and we see uh, one wave of um, people with money from compensation money from slavery or backed by investors in Britain who have compensation money. Some of the biggest pastoral estates are started uh, in the Western District of Victoria with 
by consortia of Scottish merchants who trade to the Atlantic, for example. But then the gold rush brings another wave of uh, immigrants, as you say. It was also a time where some of the people who'd stayed on in the Caribbean, you know, they might have um, been compensated for their enslaved workforce. The economy was going quite badly, but they stayed on. But then it got really bad just about the time the Victorian gold rushes were starting. So at that point, they come to Australia, sometimes bringing not enormous amounts of capital, um, but just enough to get them going. And so it's not necessarily that, you know, always there were huge flows of money into the Australian colonies, but sometimes it was both the idea that there was an empire there and if one your sort of life in one part of the empire didn't work, you could move on mm. to another part. And it was just facilitated in some cases by um, those payouts. They weren't all enormous like the Trevelyan family. Well, look... Um Thank you very much indeed. And if people, again, tell me how they get onto the site if they want to. Um, well, you can look at the database by um, Googling the University College London Legacies of British Slavery Project. That will take them to it. Mm. And the work that we've been doing, we have a website. Uh, if you Google Australian Legacies of British Slavery, you'll come to that as well. And there's lots of um, new materials, for example, writing biographies of some of these people and putting them in the People Australia website, which is um, attached to the Australian Dictionary of Biography. And all of that's available freely online. Oh, loads for people to do. I remember seeing Richard Roxburgh, the actor, do a Who Do You Think You Are, where he discovered that his actually ancestors had been marvellous people in the Caribbean, really o- operating on behalf of the slaves, trying to, his, you know, forebears. Uh, he was quite stunned by it all. So it's not all bad <laughs> waiting well, in this. Well, <laughs> it's, it's not all bad, although we have chosen to emphasise often those stories as opposed to the bad ones, I think. Okay. Look, thank you very much indeed, Zoe Laidlaw. Lovely to have your company. Thank you. Uh, Zoe is a professor of history at the University of Melbourne. Her primary expertise lies in the 19th century history of the British Empire. Well, up next, more on our ties with Britain and, of course, the big celebrations in London. Yes, well, unless you've been living under a rock, you know the coronation is on tonight. The ultimate pageant in the best British tradition. So is humour about the royals on full display late last month during a BBC debate on the monarchy's purpose. The musician Billy Bragg had his own take on it. Billy Bragg, in your system, where would they live? You'd still have a king and queen. Well, yeah, you still have a king and queen, <laughs> and you probably have the, the Prince of Wales as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we could chip in a bit to that, I suppose, but they do have a lot of land and they do have a lot of income, so maybe they could pay their way a little bit more. Uh, they could probably I'd get away, maybe... They'd have to choose two out of three out of Balmoral, Buckingham Palace and Windsor. And whichever one they didn't want, then we could turn that into... I mean, Buckhouse would be the obvious one. Cause it's what happened to Sandringham? Huh? What happened to Sandringham? Oh, they're all gone, mate. Uh, they're gonna, they're, yeah, we can turn it into a hospital. That could be a hospital. <laughs> yeah. Just like the, the big three. They can choose out the big three. We know, we know all those various royal sites so well. That's the point. But should you be at a quiz night, here are some extra facts for your team. Of the world's 195 countries, 42, believe it or not, are still monarchies, the British being the most famous. The countries with the oldest roots in monarchy are Japan, Cambodia, Oman, Morocco and Norway. 
What has this institution represented in cultures of the past? What does it represent now? Let me introduce you to a man who's spent quite some time speculating on this question because there are probably as many opinions as citizens, especially here in Australia. Stephen Bates covered royal matters for The Guardian for many years and he's just published The Shortest History of the Crown. And there's a lot to learn. Welcome to the program. Hi, Geraldine. Nice to speak to you. The Guardian's royalty and religious affairs correspondent. Now, a lot of listeners may be surprised to hear such a role even exists, given The Guardian's overall approach. Did the editors allow you sort of full steam ahead? Uh, Yeah, I always used to say uh, when I was working at the paper that I I covered two uh, institutions that The Guardian didn't really believe in. (laughs) Um, But... uh, uh, with the idea that um, you cover your enemies more closely than your friends, uh, I was appointed to cover the royal family as an institution and a historic and political entity as much as um, what Kate uh, Middleton was wearing or, um, or what, what Meghan Markle was up to. I bet you got so, that in there, um, though, to it, some it extent, a, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I wanted that as well. But I had a higher purpose, it was thought. And look, interesting, and it is interesting in terms of our discussion, that it was twinned with religious affairs. Now, in your examination down through the centuries, can we assume that monarchies and religion are generally intertwined? Well, not necessarily in other countries, but um, certainly the church has played a huge and central part in um British society, not so much these days, but over history, and in sustaining the monarchy as an institution right back into the Dark Ages and the arrival of St. Augustine in Canterbury um, and converting the English king of of the East Wessex. These were um, bolsters to temporal power. It was Mm. a spiritual influence, and uh, that's what's happening with the coronation as well, which follows a pretty traditional pattern of having uh, the Church of England uh, involved in the ceremonials. Other countries don't tend to have coronations, certainly not like the British do, and certainly not with the religious input that um, the coronation of King Charles will have. No, and in fact, one of the very interesting discussions around the Catholic Church these days is what's now believed to be the terrible mistake that the Church made during the French Revolution times when it fundamentally defended the aristocrats and the monarch and, you know, were were perceived to be very much on the wrong side of history, you know, in defending the monarchs who were gradually losing their power. Well, that's right. Of course, Henry VIII over here... um enlisted uh, the church, in in fact, created a a new church in opposition to the papacy. And uh, the Church of England uh, stems ultimately from that. And it still um, maintained the uh, royal power, even Mm. as uh, Henry VIII filched most of their property and an awful lot of uh, their wealth. Look, in the last couple of hundred years, the monarchs that have lasted have generally ceded lots and lots of power towards parliaments, as you say in your book. It became the main institution. Was there much tension between the original power brokers in the royals and the new ones, would you say? Does it exist at all now? Uh, yes, it does. I mean, the, the Church of England um, has lost a lot of its support in the pews. I mean, very 
few people go to church on Sundays on, on a regular basis, but it, it still clings to its established status. The Church of England is one of the few religious uh, organizations across the world which uh, still maintains a, a sort of formal part in the constitution, still has bishops in the House of Lords, the upper chamber. In fact, it's often said that uh, only the House of Lords in Britain and the Iranian parliament still have uh, religious representatives as of right there. But things are changing. Um, 70 years ago, when the Queen was crowned uh, in 1953, you didn't have uh, participation by any other religious groups other than the Church of England at Westminster Abbey. This year, there's um, representatives of all the main faith groups in the country, and um, they all have a part to play in the ceremony. Mm. But it is still a Church of England ceremony. It was quite interesting, a, a commentary, I think, from the London Daily Telegraph, I think it was, making the point that some of Charles's recent discussions have almost, they've sort of stressed the role of service workers who serve others. And it was perceived to be a little bit of a commentary on the Tory party. Now, I'm, I'm not asking you to get into politics, but, you know, this is what I mean about subtle tensions that might exist between the two groups. Yes, I think that's, I think that's true. And of course, the Church of England, as a Christian body, has tended at least in aspiration, to side with the little people against the, the rich and powerful. Mm. Um, it's been a pretty anomalous position. They've been like um, ostriches um, looking in two directions at once and burying their head in the sand in the middle. But in terms um, of the monarchy's role, I suppose? For about a century and a half, the British monarchy has at least paid lip service to uh, dealing with and appreciating the work of ordinary people. It started uh, with Edward VII when he was Prince of Wales and Queen Victoria had withdrawn after the death of Prince Albert. He uh, became, because she denied him any sort of constitutional role, he became a, a figure who went round opening things, contributing to charitable causes, paying visits to deprived areas, that sort of thing. And that's continued because the British monarchy is appreciated that it doesn't just serve the rich in a society. It has to um, act as a unifying force in society. And of course, not only in Great Britain, but uh, it tries to do so in the 14 other realms, including Australia, when it visits. Um, look, the role of the media, as you say, is a critical change in the life of modern monarchs. It's given monarchs new ways to be seen and heard, not just by their subjects, but by the whole world. And it's given them greatly enhanced visibility, but at a heavy price. How heavy, in your view, is that price? Well, it's turned the monarchy into uh, a national soap opera and uh, occasionally uh, a, a national joke. But um, if the media didn't exist, uh, the royals would not last very long because, as the late Queen used to say, you have to be seen to be believed. Uh, you have to constantly be at least a, a more or less visible presence in the national life. Otherwise, people really do begin to question whether it's worth having you. So it, it's a Faustian bargain as far as they are concerned. They have to perform for the media uh, much as they loathe doing so. If they didn't, they'd be gone. 
Gee, that's quite blunt. There's a, a very interesting line that you put in your book. Yet one has to ask, in the full glare of the studio lights, how much magic can remain? Uh, because there's magic critically involved, isn't isn't there in the in the maintenance of uh, of royalty? And um, gee, we've certainly seen that challenge, shall we say, with the whole Prince Harry stuff. Uh, well, that's certainly true. Um, and I wrote that I think before the latest Prince Harry uh, interviews and uh, what have you. Um, yeah, that was really taken from a, a line in a book by the 19th century constitutional historian, uh, Walter Badgett, who said, um, it warned of the dangers of letting daylight in on the magic of monarchy. It was supposed to be a rather concealed and uh, a rather mystical entity. And if you open the curtains wide, it starts to shrivel. Um, well, that hasn't happened. In fact, probably the reverse has happened. But it's been a very painful experience, as um, all the current members of the royal family have discovered over the years, Charles with Diana and now Harry with Meghan. Um, they won't appreciate it, but it does help sustain interest and loyalty uh, in, um, loyalty? Do you think, do you in think, the institution. Do you think it, it encourages loyalty? Yeah, I do, actually, because... Um, while it exposes their flaws, it shows that they're humans as well as um, demigods, you know. Um, demigods was how they liked to perceive themselves 200 years ago. And certainly um, back in the days of the divine right of kings, back in the 17th century. Um, as uh, someone once said to Queen Victoria when she was uh, not appearing in public, uh, the people like um, some guilt for their money. G-I-L-T, uh, rather than uh, G-U-I-L-T. You know, if, if you're um, helping to pay for the institution, you demand the right to see them and enjoy them. And uh, I just wonder whether happens. they can have normal family lives. And, you know, again, in terms of the role it plays inside the culture, it certainly sort of leaves one with some questions. Well, you have to play the game. You have to show yourself if you're not there, then um, the institution begins to fade. And uh, that's something mm. that the um, brighter members of the royal family appreciate. Well, it's interesting, though, like the look at the, thinking of whether there are substitutes. The Kennedys, you know, developed a bit of a reputation for a while as America's royal family. Now, if titles like this can be bandied about, I wonder what that says about real royal families or, accordingly, the society's need for something that is, oh, I don't know, vaguely irrational but full of mystique? Uh, well, it, it, maybe if you were starting from here, you wouldn't invent a monarchy, but it has that long, certainly in Britain's case, and as you said at the start, um, other countries, it has those deep traditional roots and people rather like that. I remember going on a royal tour to Canada once years ago and uh, a million people, a million Canadians, not the most um, excitable race on the planet, um, turned out to see uh, Prince William, as he was and is then, and, uh, and Kate Middleton, his new bride. A million people thronging Ottawa, which is not a huge city, just to catch a vague glimpse of them. And I said to a Canadian journalist who was uh, covering uh, the day, 
what appeals to Canadians about um, this British young British couple? And he said, we like the monarchy here, he said, because it's something the Americans don't have. <laughs> and uh, I, 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 th I think there's quite a strong element of truth in that. The most obsessive royal watchers in the world are Americans. And they tend to try to pretend that they're rather proud that they did away with the British monarchy 240 odd years ago. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, it, Vladimir Putin trying to rehabilitate the, the ruling Romanovs, um, you know, on a, on a, a trip I was lucky enough oh, to make I, in yeah. 2019, you know, and watching them sort of rehabilitate and restore the Bolshoi I Ballet think, and the curtains were of the Romanov um, insignias. It was extraordinary yeah, to see. I think, we're, I, I think Vladimir Putin rather wishes he was a Romanov himself. <laughs> um, thanks yeah. so much for your time. That's great. Nice to speak to you, Geraldine. And Stephen Bates will be covering the ceremony for The Guardian. He's the author of The Shortest History of the Crown. It's published by Black Ink Books. And it's been fascinating, really, to see who's part of the Australian delegation. Quite a wide group. Nick Cave's inclusion has perplexed many, and he answered some of his fans on his webpage, The Red Hands File, which I've been urged to read. I am not a monarchist, says Nick, nor... Am I a royalist, nor am I an ardent Republican for that matter? What I am also not is so spectacularly incurious about the world and the way it works, so ideologically captured, so damn grouchy, as to refuse an invitation to what will more than likely be the most important historical event in the UK of our age. Not just the most important, but the strangest, the weirdest. And he goes on to describe meeting the Queen. Look, it's well worth reading. And on that note, let's go out with the stunningly good South African soprano, soprano Pretty Yende, who will be performing at the coronation. Here she is with Kate Aldrich performing the flower duet from Delib's Lakme. Bye-bye. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.